It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello and welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. I am your host, Michael Henry Harris, and welcome to part two of my conversation with theater director Justin Anderson. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one and want to dive on in, I think you'd be okay. Uh, we resume with him uh, kind of just trying to decide uh, where to re- where to go to uh, when he leaves grad school. And we kind of dive into uh, his career, both on the artistic side, how he approaches auditions and plays and musicals. And also, uh, career-wise, professionally, how he approaches uh, you know, seeking work. Uh, he definitely uh, talks about being your own advocate. And I think it's something every artist could stand to hear a thousand times, including myself. Um, before we get into the podcast, I do want to mention uh, the Flock email. And if you're not uh, part of the Flock email group, I think you certainly should be. It's two emails a month. The first email contains your monthly dose of art. It has a link to a short film, uh, some poetry, a short story or a narrative nonfiction, and visual art. And it's just like your small little monthly dose of art if you're too busy to get out there and go see something. Uh, The second email a month talks about this podcast and our other podcasts. We uh, have the Origin Story podcast where we talk to everyday superheroes. We do the Owls on Culture podcast, which is co-hosted by my son, Hank Owl. And it's Hank and I talking about different cultural things in the universe. A lot of it tends to be Marvel movies, but uh, even though they seems like there's a million of them, uh, we also talk about other things as well. Uh, so if you want something to listen to with your child, perhaps in the car, to kind of uh, get you guys talking about what's going on uh, culturally in the world, uh, that might be uh, a way to do it. And we certainly, Hank and I have a lot of fun with it. So if any of that appeals to you, please do go to pineconeturkey.com and sign up for the flock email. I promise I will never sell your email address or give it away to anyone, and it will only be two emails a month. All right, without further ado, here is Justin Anderson. So did you know when you decided to leave where you were going to go? I... uh I didn't know initially, but quickly landed back on Georgia because I had family down here. I felt like I had begun a series of professional engagements down here, particularly through Georgia Shakespeare when they were in operation, uh, because I had assistant directed a couple of shows for two summers before I went to grad school. And so I felt like I had made some inroads with those creatives, but knew full well that I hadn't really investigated the rest of the city that much because of what I was doing at Woodland and the amount of time that that was taking. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the the softer place to land um, because of one, having maybe some degree of, of, of familiarity, having a little bit of uh, familial structure down here, having some professional, uh, you know, tentacles out that might have some uh, payoff and uh, I was offered a full-time position at North Point Community Church as their production director of Kid Stuff, uh, which is a program geared towards kindergartners through fifth graders that provides a family experience 
akin to, I would say, sort of Nickelodeon meets PBS meets an after-school special, but it was a live experience. And I had worked with them as an actor for a couple of seasons before I went to grad school. And so again, coming from a position where I already had some debt to deal with, walking into the potential of a full-time job with benefits, insurance, all that jazz, and a desire to figure out, okay, how can I maybe recon- uh, reconnect or intersect with this theater community down here? Uh, uh, this might be the place to come back to. Yeah, it would be tough to uh, not go back to a, like a, a full-time job opportunity. Right, right. And so uh, some of it maybe was out of, uh, you know, look, again, looking back at it now, was it's simply necessity. Um this seemed to be the the shiniest choice. Uh, so, and, and also too, I, I'll be honest, I think there was an initial period of maybe you can call it mourning um, in, in, in terms of reflecting on leaving school. And even though I knew and had been affirmed by, uh, uh, sorry, Amy Saltz, who was the head of the directing program at, at Rutgers, was she was not a precious woman by any means. She was very matter of fact and just was very clear about how she viewed the world and gave me the best piece of advice that I think actually allowed for permission to make the choice to leave. She said, Justin, you're putting way too much weight on this choice. Like this choice is just going to lead to another choice, is going to lead to another choice, is going to lead to another choice. And if this is what you're supposed to do, I guarantee you're going to find your way back into it. She said, if I didn't support your work or care about what you did, it would be very easy for me to wave goodbye to you. And I'm not saying that I want you to go, but here's what you have to do. At the end of the day, you have to do you. Oh my God. <laughs> and so it was like, like if you have to go, like go with my blessing, right? And it was, I don't know, it was, it was revelatory to me because I, again, and I didn't know that I needed, I didn't even know that I needed permission to make that choice. And I felt like it was just this, you know, this cancer eating me up and yeah, you're in your young twenties. Right. I mean, right. And so when she, when she voiced that, it just opened up a world of possibility. And so, uh, when I came back down here for a period of time, Oh gosh, I'm mean, several months. It was not keeping my head down because I, you know, I felt like I had to, but I, it, maybe there was some degree of shame in sort of, and not that I had, built up a tremendous amount of those uh, relationships within the theater community, but enough, I think, for people to know, oh, Justin's going off to grad school. Oh, Justin's back. What happened? It's amazing that we do that to ourselves. Right? You know what I mean? It's, it's our own vampires and demons that we wrestle with that, uh, and, and again, they're all self-imposed. Um, but it does come from, a, 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 I think, a, or maybe does manifest itself in in some degree of shame. And so it was me sort of having to work through that and figure out, okay, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And then I, I just had this, this thought of like, okay, um, I, I really miss process work because what I had, what I was currently doing at North Point, uh, while I thought there was a tremendous amount of value attached to it, it was all very product driven. There's a framework and sort of a template to which we would adhere uh, a lot of uh, our, our creative content. And so I think that's what really sort of was able to assuage this sense of like, oh, you're not enough, Justin, you're a failure, blah, blah, blah. It was the burning desire of like, I'm jonesing for the thing. I'm to jonesing for, for being back in that kind of work. And so I just, um, I thought, okay, well, if I've learned nothing from Rutgers, I've learned this. You've got to be your own manager, right? So I started a, some might say, an aggressive email campaign. Yeah. 
to any, literally any uh, artistic director or producer or managing director in town uh, that I could find email contacts for. Some of them were very easy to discover on websites. Others you had to dig through or sort of go through back channels to figure like, how do I contact this particular person? Um, with the simple um, premise of uh, sort of explaining, for those of you that don't know, this is who I am. This is literally my life's journey up until this point. I was teaching high school, went to grad school. Things happened. Now I'm back. I just want to be in the room. I'm not asking for any money because I knew and still know that most theaters don't have a budget line for an assistant director or an associate director. Uh, and I wasn't in a position where I was a starving artist. So it, I, upon reflection, looking back, I, I, I may have actually, I don't know. I don't think I would change a thing. Uh, maybe in, in, if someone else were in a position of sort of that kind of want and desire, uh, don't don't undervalue yourself at the same time, right? I I played that financial card as a as a tactic. Well, I think you knew how just lo- like how excited. Oh, a, a body that has skills and experience well, and for free. Totally, totally you can't really pass well. That up. And also, I mean, some of it was you know hoping that your assets were going to speak some some degree of volume, but knowing full well that many of these people didn't really know me from Adam. Um, but again, I think it was sort of the, the, the earnestness and sort of the, the constant, uh, maybe squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of deal. How long did you spend writing that email? Uh, uh, oh gosh. Um, this is a, sh- this is a short, but long enough. It was, it was, it was a formative narrative email. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know, the life and times of Justin Anderson in four parts. Uh, it wasn't like the next American novel by any means, but it was, I thought I, you know, it was pretty substantial. And I, uh, so I would, you know, I sent that out to a bunch of folks and many people were really gracious and, and warm and responsive and, uh, were open to just having a conversation. That's really sort of how I, I couched and, and landed, um, the emails. I just wanted to talk to somebody about what that might look like. So how many, how about how many people did you send that to? About, oh gosh. About, um, I was trying to see the rate of response. You yeah. Got from that. I mean, uh, 25 or 30, maybe, maybe even more than that. Um, and some of them were even outside of the context of the immediate Atlanta area, uh, just in terms of trying to cultivate some possibility of if I had the opportunity or on a weekend or whatever, could I come and sit in on a rehearsal somewhere? Not even necessarily asking initially to be considered as an assistant director. It was, can I just sit in the room? Can I just be present to observe what's going on? Um, and then when people are like, oh, yeah, absolutely, would you, would you consider blah, 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 or maybe even you know offering the possibility of thinking, are you asking to assistant direct something? I would then sort of take that cue as, actually, that would be wonderful if that was the case. But again, I'm not asking for any remuneration. And also, it's going to be, uh, I, will, I will play the rule book of the director. So if they want me to be vocal, great. If they just want to have conversations with me before or after rehearsals or on breaks, great. If they just want to converse through email about my thoughts about this, that, or the other, great. I'm not asking for like, I have to have some degree of, uh, you know, influence in the room or whatever. Um, I wanted to honor whoever was steering that ship and, and, and really whatever organization was, uh, crafting that particular product, um, in terms of just, you know, being a, a guest in their space. And would you recommend this method for I, other, I, for younger I, artists? I, I totally would. I absolutely would. And I mean, literally I, it, it, it now has become cliche, I think, because of, uh, because of Hamilton, uh, you know, being in the room where it happens, uh, which I love. But it is true. I think the, the, the only way that you're really ever going to learn uh, or, or 
unpack or assess how a professional uh, rehearsal production, or even even if you were starting back at um, early concept design meetings, all the way through you know a, a finalized design meeting, any component of that process, you just have to be present for it. You have to see how other people are navigating that. You have to see how other people are communicating with other artists uh, in the room. Um, you know whether it's designers or producers or actors, uh, uh, and often um, you're going to learn from things that may not work that well probably even more so than things that do and i think that's that's a true life lesson like completely you know um so i again uh, uh, innumerable folks in this town were, were gracious enough to offer me the opportunity to be in the room and i i did that for about oh gosh uh maybe a full season or a season and a half and the last show that i assistant directed was around the world in 80 days at theatrical outfit and I think this was, oh gosh, was it spring of 2010 or fall of 2000, 2009? I'm not sure. Maybe spring of 2010. Uh, maybe it was fall of 20. Anyways, I have to go back and check the dates. But um, Clint Thornton was directing the piece. Okay. And uh, he, he sort of provided the best... Uh, uh, let me... Let me go back and double back and get back to this point. The sense of like, I think you could, if you're not careful, you could sit in this lane for forever. You know what I mean? Going back to the idea of the being comfortable. Lane. Yeah. The assistant lane okay. where I'm just sort of like the second, um, throwing in a, a tidbit where needed secretly thinking, Oh, I could do that better myself. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if I were asked to do it, it'd be like me talk pretty one day. Right. Um, but I think we all do that from afar. We're like, we're those sideline, you know, those living room, uh, coaches or referees. Much easier. On the <laughs> uh, so then he, he provided this incredible, really what was a, uh, an intersection. It was sort of like he, he demanded that I sort of get to this crossing and said, uh, this was over tech weekend of that show of around the world in 80 days. We were on dinner break and he came and found me in the rehearsal room up in TO. I was eating my dinner there and we had a conversation about this, that, and the other. And the thing that he offered me was, this is going to be the last show that you assistant direct, Justin. Like, what are you talking about, Clint? Because this is it. Like, you just need to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Not out of petulance, but to, if, because if you don't say no, you're always going to say yes to this thing. Um, and I thought, well, that's easy for you to say, Clint, because you're, you're booking things. You've, you've got gigs on the, the docket. And he said, just, I just want you to promise me that this is going to be the last one. And so I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And it was. It ended up being the last thing that I assistant directed because what, what birthed itself out of that, um, after that uh, experience was um, there was a reading that was coming up at Synchronicity Theater, part of the She Writes Festival that, that is connected to the Lark in, in New York. Um, and Rachel May, who's the artistic director of Synchronicity, curates uh, sort of an Atlanta version of that every couple of years. And um, there, uh, she was in need of a director, an 11th hour switch because someone had been assigned to the show and they couldn't do it for whatever conflict. And I, the only reason I knew Rachel was from my relationship with her husband, Daniel, at Georgia Shakespeare. And that's where I had met Rachel initially at some, I think it was either before or after a show, one of the company closing picnics or whatever, but didn't really have a lot of contact with her as the artistic director of Synchronicity. Uh, and so I had made an ask during this whole email campaign of like, this is who I am, blah, 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 blah. Um, I had asked Rachel about a play that she was producing called My Name is Rachel Corey. 
uh, a one-woman show that I had seen in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland, at the Edinburgh Theatre Festival, oh gosh, back in 2007, because our school had been invited as a potential candidate to go over and perform. We ended up not going, and I ended up leaving high school to go to grad school, but uh, I went on the trip <laughs> to scope out Edinburgh, and it was fantastic. If you've never been and can really figure out a way to get there and uh, spend the three weeks where that entire festival spans, it's 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 mind-blowing and life-changing because uh, there's theater happening everywhere, yeah. not just in real spaces. I mean, people are putting on a curated experience in a phone booth or in a bathroom stall. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, I will say, though, I saw uh, the worst production of Macbeth I ever saw in my life <laughs> in Scotland, of all places. Of all places. You know, I wanted it to be so good, it ended up being really awful. Well, um, it's not. I mean, if you have the money and you have the production, I mean, you can go do it. It's, totally. It's not, it's, totally. They don't curate. The, absolutely. Exactly. So there's no, yeah, there's it no. It can be very hit yes, and miss from what yes, I understand. Absolutely. I've never been, I would love to go. But, you, but. yes, it's, it's well worth um uh, the trip. So anyways, uh, I had seen this production and I saw that uh, Synchronicity was producing it. And so I'd asked Rachel if there was any way I could be in the room. And because of the nature of the play, it's a very um, uh, tenuous and I would say traumatic um, telling of Rachel Corey, who was was basically bulldozed um, for standing her ground. Uh, uh, there was a need that Rachel had to want to keep it a safe space for the actor uh, Courtney Patterson was playing the role and I totally understood that and, and was, was very gracious that she was kind enough to even sort of give me two seconds to say, this is why it's not that I'm saying no, it's just not right now. Right. And so that not right now ended up manifesting in, Hey, I have a, an opening for this reading. Do you have any interest or availability? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it was a play called, um, silver to a trading agent. Um, that uh, was a part of this festival. And so I came in and I was working with um, Tess Maliskin Cade. Um, oh gosh, who else uh, was a part of that show? Mark, uh, Mark and Cade might have been a part of it. Uh, non theater nerds in Atlanta. These are, yeah, these, these are sorry. Really yeah, these are, these are like A list people here in town who just uh, are, are, but are also like salt of the earth folks and people you want to you want to create something with. Um, so I, I immediately was put into this arena with people who I considered to be it here in town. And it was funny because Rachel and I never had any uh, real uh, FaceTime during the rehearsal process of that festival, but the reading went really well. It was received well. The actors, I, I, I think, had good conversations about me to her, with her. Um, and so another opportunity uh, arose later in that year. This is like fall of 2010 where um, they had announced their season uh, and they were doing a TYA production, an adaptation of uh, the children's book, the best Christmas pageant ever. And I have a deep connection to that novel because I, I remember buying it from the scholastic book fair in second grade. I, I'm curious how many people remember those flyers that you would get to take home. I know I do. And I would, I would literally like go like home Christmas. and like, yes. And like, um, I would probably circle almost every book and I'm the fourth of five uh, siblings. And my mom was always like, you can get one, just pick one. Yeah. So I remember buying that in second grade. Um, and so I had, you know, a personal connection to that piece. And uh, again, it was a weird thing that sort of happened that there was someone else who was slated to work on the show and then this person, kind of 11th hour, had been accepted to a graduate program for graphic design somewhere. And so they had to say no. And 
at that point, I was like, I don't, I'll be the second, I'll be the third or fourth, whatever. I, let me just throw my hat in the ring and see if there's any room to have a conversation. And so that's what, that's how I approach Rachel. And because we'd already had a little bit of a connection with this reading, I felt like I could make the ask. I said, right. Hey, can I, can we just sit and talk about the possibility of what it would look like or what you, what you would need from someone, uh, or demonstrated from someone to be able to offer them, uh, like a solo directing gig. Um, and so we we met at uh, a local coffee shop um, in Indicator, and uh, again within about a half an hour, um, she offered me the job, <laughs> and it was. So what did she want to see? Uh, well, I think um, someone. What was curious was, I think that half hour is what she needed to see, in terms of uh, me talking about my experience, my time uh, teaching high school, my time at Rutgers, coming back, sort of what I was doing within the community. Um, and people, I think, were were becoming very aware of uh, the communication that I was making with everyone else because uh, everyone else was receiving that communication. So it wasn't like this secret thing of, um, and so when you started seeing and playbills or hearing from folks that, oh, Justin's in the room, Justin's here, Justin's doing this, it just, it started creating a little bit of like lore, right. um, which uh, really it, it was, it, it, for me, it was, it always ended up being a positive thing, um, except for, I have one exception, I'll tell you about it in just a second. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> so, um, can, we, can we backtrack? Yeah. Why do you think Clint said what he did? I think he said what he did because... Um, he knew, uh, even if I didn't know myself or didn't believe myself that I was ready to, to take something on, on my own. And I think it's because, um, he saw enough evidence in my support in the room and through conversations that we had from, from go up until, uh, uh, the opening of the piece. I actually ended up, what was so bizarre about that play is I ended up being a part of the entire run. They ended up being short run crew. So I just volunteered. I mean, they ended. I think they ended up paying me a little bit for that. It, I didn't get paid for the directing uh, assistant directing gig, but um, so I ended up doing the show nightly with. And so I'm I'm doing the show with Tom Key, who's the executive producing artistic director of Theatrical Outfit. So I have FaceTime with him for weeks. That's actually where I met Yonita Becho, who was the costume designer of the show and now is the artistic director of uh, Tatra Metropole in Tirana, Albania, that I ended up going and, and directing a show there last year. I love that. I can't yeah. wait to talk about that. So, um, so that's the thing that I think um, you you forget the potency that you have just by building relationships. And I tell people all the time, I think, yes, talent is one thing, but... Uh, but what is that? Like it's an ephemeral thing as well, right? And I think everyone, not everyone, there are many people that have some degree or, or scope of quote unquote talent. Um, but when it comes down to uh, like the heart of the matter, I think what you're really vetting in someone is, is relational connectivity. And I think as artists before the work, uh, the, the, the only capital we really have is people. It's relational investment. And it's not about like, oh, hey, I'm just gonna sort of get to know you and we're going to be chums and whatever and you're going to give me a job. It's figuring out, do do we jive in terms of uh, sort of the, the mission of why we do what we do? If you're a guest being invited into somebody else's producing organization, can you effectively uphold and adhere to that mis- mission and support it in an authentic way? Um, 
are you going to honor being a guest in that person's house? Are you um, going to be someone that uh, is is open and collaborative to your designers and your actors? And you get a lot of that information simply just by having conversations with someone about the work that they've done. You can tell. I think you can tell very quickly if someone is about others or is about themselves. Um, and so I'd like to believe that in the course of that conversation with Rachel, that there was enough that, you know, maybe proverbially checked the boxes right. that allowed for her to make that offer to me. Um, which again was exciting and scary uh, because half of the cast, more than half the cast were kids. So it was a mix of adults and children. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. But, and you know, and I just was determined um, to not uh, compartmentalize or label this play as, well, this is just a TYA play. Um, and I, I, I feel my heart breaks for people that, that do that so easily to relegate and say, well, this is just for this group of people. And this is just for this group of people. I said, no, it's a story. And why would you, why would you diminish something just by putting a label on it? Why not treat it with 110% of the investment and authenticity that you can and should, uh, and allow that to have the impact on anyone who sees it, because it's not just kids who are seeing that show. There are plenty of adults that are bringing children to see that show. So what, you know, so I, and um, also these are the kids that hopefully one day a spark. I mean, yeah, you talk about, will want to be, you talk about audience development. Exactly. We, I think we shirk, um, uh, our responsibility or not even responsibility because it sounds like an obligation, but our opportunity rather to nurture and invest, um, these young audiences with, with really full, rich and wonderfully executed theatrical experiences. Um, that are not playing down to them, that actually are, are, are encouraging an elevation of the conversation. In fact, it's, I, I think it's, yes, it's meeting a child, but hopefully it's, it's, it's saying, come up here, like come up here to what we're doing, because I know you have the ability to do it, and actually you already have sort of the intrinsic ability to understand, even if you don't think you do, or even if you may not be there on a particular reading level or comprehension level, it's, it's figuring out how do you keep leveling someone up and, and pushing them towards potential, not just saying, well, let's just let's just play in this particular level. And it's also increasing the chances that you are setting a tradition of, course. of going to the theater. Yes. That is just something your family does. Absolutely. And in, one of the things I found in New York was that was, a, that was so prevalent. Because it's part of the cultural fabric. Exactly. And that's what I like about what I think, uh, you know, companies like Aurora yeah. that are taking this, this geography of the Atlanta metro area and saying, we're going to own this. Mm -hmm that they're going to be able to create that. Right. And that's something that um, I've, I've found is lacking. I agree. I would totally agree. So yeah. And agree. so certainly like our region presents an obstacle. Our sprawl pretend, uh, presents an obstacle. We don't have a traditional theater row or theater district here in Atlanta. And so if you're not in the in crowd about what's happening in a, you know, a th uh, the theatrical landscape, you're not going to know. Uh, and often, uh, and we maybe not jokingly say, but we often say that word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. And it is absolutely true because I could send postcards to the cows come home. I could post on social media ad nauseum, but that's not going to sway someone to say, Oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's very rarely I'm going to get a postcard in the mail and say, Oh, that's the thing that I want to see. It's hearing from someone else. I had this incredible experience with, whatever fill in the blank you should totally go see it right bring your fam whatever that is um and i really feel like we 
we rely on that so heavily and maybe it's 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 not just a southern uh region it it might be anywhere else outside of a commercial district like new york because that is so much tied to tourism and because it's in your face and as you know i mean it's in your face so often it is just a part of the fabric it's part whether you attend or not you know it's happening you can't not know. Right. That and there's so many of them. There's you, so many they're of all them, right? Um, and so, you know, again, I think that's part of the charge of being uh, nestled and rooted in a community outside of that auspice that, uh, that, that is really part of our mission, as I said before, to, to build a new generation of, uh, of theater goers, help to build some of those traditions and, and those, uh, that appreciation for the live context. Um, so uh, so I, I ended up doing that show with Synchronicity and what was beautiful about that experience is it just snowballed into other opportunities and it got to a point where I still found myself making asks because I felt like I, I became emboldened to do so, not in a naive way, but um, feeling like now I had a little bit of some street cred, right? you know what I mean? Are you inviting other Yeah, totally. To inviting, and- inviting other artists to come and see the work. Um, uh, you know, making sure that there was, uh, again, treating the piece with as much care and authenticity and, and honesty as possible. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then of course those who end up working with you, if they have a positive experience are going to be your best advocates, not even just the the patrons, uh, but it's those collaborators around you. And work, so good work begets good work. I absolutely agree. And ideally the work is going to speak for itself, um, without you having to tout this, that or the other. And so it just started creating a bit of a, a, a ripple and, um, uh, you know, sort of expanding those, I don't want to say tentacles. It sounds like I'm trying to like wrap a web around <laughs> something. Um, and then, uh, I was, I was sort of in duality, uh, working on those and still working at North point. Um, and then, uh, by the time let's like fast forward to where you and I have a major intersection with angry fags at seven stages, which was what February, March of 2013. Um, by that point, I was already feeling this sort of internal tension of I've got I've got to make some choice. I can't. I'm not bringing. I don't think my fullest self to both things because they're both demanding a tremendous amount of energy. And um, what ended up sort of being the 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 straw was that play. So tell me, tell me, was it purely just coincidental timing? Was it was I, to do with the. Play it might or? have been both. So um, I had. Um, and again, it, I don't think it was because I was trying to be um, uh, covert or anything, but I had not had a conversation with anyone at North Point about this particular play, and it was some discovery of a colleague of mine saying, "What are you? What angry fags? <laughs> yeah. What?" Uh, and so we, you know, we ended up having a conversation, um, and it, 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 it it landed in a fairly mutual place because it just ended up again, almost like that conversation I had with Amy in grad school. It ended up giving me permission to make a choice. Um, and it, there was no sense of like, this is the, the ultimatum. You can't, you can't work on this and still work for the church or whatever. It was, it's just evident that your, your passions and desires are, are, are taking you somewhere else. Um, and also there were internal changes happening within, within kid stuff itself. And, and that was morphing into something that was much more along a digital format than a live format, even though they were still live component. And so I was losing a little bit of that, um, I don't know, uh, uh sort of interest in, in initial excitement as to why I was doing it in the first place. So it seemed to, to, to 
uh, coalesce and sort of land in a place where it, it seemed like the right choice to make at that particular point in time. So I left North Point uh, that February, February 2013, and effectively became an independent freelance contracting director, which I'd never done in my life before. So it's the you first built time up savings had you well like, to a, to you... a certain degree. I mean, I would not say that I had some tremendous nest egg uh, supporting me, um, but I was I really was sort of stepping out on uh, you know some degree of uh, we'll let's see what happens. How did that feel? Uh, all, crazy. <laughs> uh, both both. Um, both exciting and scary. You know, it's that, it's that, that thing from into the woods, you know, a little bit excited and scared. Um, uh, so it, because change just does that to you and the possibility of, of what's out there, um, elicits that. So what, uh, and, and, you know, thankfully I had some work lined up for several months and what I ended up deciding to do was, um, I knew that, the the uh, theater communications group conference was happening in June. It happens in June every year. And uh, the theater communications group, some people call it TCG for short, is the national advocacy group for professional theaters that are not commercial. So it's anywhere from a, sort of a non-union house can be a member all the way up to a Lort house, League of Resident Theater. So sort of running through that gamut of regional work. Um, and so you you it's a one opportunity really that you have uh, over the course of a long weekend in a different host city every year to have conversations with, rub shoulders with, uh, you know, the artistic staff at the Guthrie or, uh, you know, La Jolla or, you know, a smaller house somewhere else in the United States. And we're all in the same space together. Uh, And so I just thought, okay, again, how do I find the opportunity in this transition? And because I wasn't quite sure if um, this was going to be home uh, for forever because of this sort of new step, I thought, well, what, why not? What the hell? Let's let me, let me figure out a way to, to get to this conference. It happened to be in Dallas uh, that year. This was back in 2013. And so I funded myself to go to TCG. Um, I ended up staying in like super cheap motel on the other side of town from where the event was occurring in the arts district and like cabbing or walking across the city to get to these events and uh because i just thought i was like i just need to i just need to be in the room again i need to figure out the pulse of what's going on and who knows who i'll meet and who knows whatever i remember having um business cards printed up and and there was a there was some delay in the printing uh and so i ended up rerouting them to be sent to the hotel where i was staying and like all kinds of macgyvering to make this thing work right um and so there was a, an Atlanta contingency there for sure. Um, and uh, were they so folks, like, "Hey, why are you here?" Uh, or they like, uh, sort of, were like, "Who are you here with?" And I was like, "I'm here by myself." And they're like, "Oh, okay." You know, people from uh, the Alliance were there, Horizon and Aurora, where I'm currently at now. And Aurora, they just kind of adopted me for the weekend. Uh, so anytime that they were going out for drinks or to a meal or whatever, they're like, hey, Justin, just come with us or whatever. And they're fun people, too. They're absolutely that, fun people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. To if you, if you, yeah, if you want to go have a drink with somebody, that's the, the group you want to go have a drink with. Um, and so um, what ended up happening was, and I was, uh, I'll preface this by saying I was contracted. I had, I had directed a show in the fall for Aurora back in fall of 2012, a play called Tigers Be Still, and I was contracted to direct the opening musical of the 2013-2014 season, which was Les Mis, um, which ended up being sort of this huge banner moment for the theater and really, I think, building off of the uh, the new musical that they had produced the year before, um, uh, Clyde and Bonnie, with Hunter Foster and Rick Crom and... Um, 
Oh gosh, uh, 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 I'm forgetting the director's name. I'll come back to it. Um, just I think forever changed the trajectory of the organization in terms of what was possible, the kind of quality that was possible, and the kind of um, sort of numeric impact that we were having just based on people who were seeing the show. Right. <clears throat> Take a sip of water real quick. Do it. Yeah, I have not hung out with the Aurora folks very often. Yeah. The one time I, I did, I was like, oh, okay, these guys are fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, so I knew that, that that was on the docket. That was upcoming. We were starting rehearsals for that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so this might have been the last night of the conference. We found ourselves in some tapas bar in, uh, in Dallas, and we were all pretty, uh, pretty drunk on sangria. <laughs> and... I remember there's a picture Anne Carol likes to to share because uh, she took it and posted it on social media. Anne Carol's the producing artistic director of the Aurora, uh, where Anthony and I are pretty drunk, really rosy cheeked, <laughs> like. Eh. Uh, but I we had a weird conversation. Anthony just leaned over, was like, "You know, would you ever consider coming to work for us?" I was like, "I already am. I directed a show last fall. I'm directing a show this summer." I was like, "No, no, 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 like like work for us." I was like, what? Like, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know. Like, okay. I mean, I, yeah, sure. I, okay. It's like, okay, okay. And that, that was it. <laughs> that was it. So we look back at it now. I was like, that was my job interview. Right. <laughs> and by that fall after, and again, this was, this was post, that was pre Les Mis. And then post Les Mis, um, there was just such energy coming from that production uh, that uh, he made a formal ask about, coming on board full time and, you know, sort of feel like, what do you want to call yourself or how do we, we didn't really know what, I mean, there was this idea of like serving as a resident director and also serving as artistic support and producer on site when, uh, he's pulled in some other direction or in Carol's pulled in some other direction. So we landed on, uh, associate artistic director and I started there full time in January of 2014. Now the interesting thing is, as I, you know, I was telling you that most people were very responsive to, um, this email campaign of like, here, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Right. Um, it might have gotten a little uh, stalker-like boyfriend with Aurora, and I'll explain. <laughs> because I ended up getting an email from Ann Carroll um, in the spring of 2012. This was actually over St. Patrick's Day weekend. I was in Savannah, Georgia. And I remember getting an email saying, I don't want to see your name in my inbox anymore. <laughs> And I thought, oh my gosh, I have done it now. I have burned a bridge before I ever built oh, it. Oh, that's a horrible feeling. It was. Um, so what, but I will say what that was predicated on <laughs> was they were producing a production of Neil Butte's Fat Pig, um, which I had seen in um, Boston, a really lovely production uh, at a theater in Boston. And I knew several of the people in the show, uh, Jacob York was, was one of the actors. Uh, and I, again, I had wanted to see if I could be a part of being in the room and didn't quite work out. And there was, there was never sort of like a, an ask to come and join. And so, um, <laughs> I don't even know what possessed me to do this. Um, and it probably was overkill. So what I ended up doing was like on opening night, I had these, uh, I just wrote like these thank you cards to the artists involved in the show saying, I'm, I'm so glad you guys are producing this play. I can't wait to see it. Thank you for doing this kind of work in town and whatever. And I went to the theater and I like hand delivered these cards to the theater. I remember I walked up to the box office desk and was like, can you just make sure that these folks get them? And I left. 
And uh, so I think they were like, who is this guy? <laughs> right. He's like some weird, I don't know, deranged mentalist walking around like, is, uh, he's got to be crazy. Um, and I can totally see that. I can see the other side of that. Um, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Um, and you're, so that might have been a request for hand delivered cards for your next correct, production. Correct. And so maybe, maybe, you know, um, uh, and also what I learned very importantly was, uh, people have different communication styles and how they receive <laughs> yeah. communication. And that is also an important thing to learn as someone who's an independent artist trying to make some degree of forward momentum and figuring out, okay, if I'm not making any traction in one way, shape or form in communication, how do I calibrate that to something else, but also figure out how much is enough, right? Um, there, if you're emailing somebody daily and they're not responding back, that's probably a sign of you should, you should double your emails, <laughs> double more often. emails. Oh, wait, okay, not <laughs> that. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so uh, that that uh, event occurred, and and in addition to that, like I don't want to say your name again. Um, it was. Please, we when you when you do something in town and we have time to come see it, I promise you we'll have a conversation. So there wasn't it wasn't a dismissal. It was no, come on. But uh, again, that's the one thing I do love about Anne Carol. That there's nothing precious about the way that she in, in, engages the world. It was like, all right, I'm I see you. I'm I hear you, you. I'm totally aware. You can stop. Thank you. Mission, no more cards. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. You got my attention. Um, that's what I see as the win. It's like, yes. There we go. <laughs> so um, I, I uh, directed a piece called uh, Petite Rouge, which is a Cajun retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood story with synchronicity. She came to see that show, and literally the next day, the very next day, she called me. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so we ended up talking, and that's what uh, got me the the gig in the fall to do Tigers Be Still, and that just sort of compounded from there. I want to I switch gears a little bit and talk a, about casting. Yeah. Uh, the cliche is that, you know, it's 75% of your job as a director. Oh, gosh. I don't it, know if you'd agree with that or uh, sometimes it up or Sometimes, down, if or? not more. I, yeah, I don't know if I could give it a specific number, but it really, is, based on who you have in the room, that's going to, it's going to either support and elevate or tank a so project. Tell me how you run <clears throat> your auditions and, sure. and how you develop that method and, and other ways of doing it as well. What I am looking for most in an actor is elasticity, someone who's flexible, not literally like physically flexible, but elastic when it comes to adjustments. Because what I, what I definitely want to see is preparation, what you bring into the room, but also what I then need to see is can you let that go and change it for me? Whether it's an actual thing that is going to manifest itself in a show or it's just an idea or an as if or something that we can layer on it right now to generate some change. And so those who can't make that adjustment, who can't figure out how to be elastic, I can't use them in a show. Yeah, I, um, I've heard that note a lot and I still am surprised at how many actors still seem like they want to hold on to their idea. Right, and, you and, know, uh, and I, I do think that that's, um, it's curious because I'm not even sure if that's a skill that I can teach somebody. I feel like it evolves and sort of manifests based on how often you're working through that skill set or applying that skill set. Um, and it, it, you know, often you see that with emerging actors, people who are maybe a little bit more green. Uh, but it's not to say that a professional who's been doing this for decades could fall into the same trap because it also could, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. it also could end up on the other end of the spectrum where they're resting on some laurel of 
well, you know what I can do, right? You've seen me in this, that, or the other. And I'm also not someone in the room who's just going to give you a participation award to say, you showed up, <laughs> yeah. you get the role, you, you. Yeah. So really, that's what it is. I mean, it's... Um, I, I, I want to be open. I often ask uh, actors um, if they have any questions about the material to give them an opportunity to engage. Do you want them to engage? Uh, they're, they're very welcome to. There are some directors who may not want that. And also, sometimes based on, on time itself, uh, you have to be conscious about how, um, how much margin you're giving in the room because it's very easy to get off track. Uh, and I also I don't want someone waiting for hours and hours and hours and feel like they're being dismissed because right. it doesn't feel respectful. Now, sometimes there's, there's no way to fully be able to manage that um, because sometimes you need to see what you need to see in the room and you may not have a, a callback session somewhere on the docket. So this might be it. Now, granted, if you have a callback, then maybe it's ideally, if that's the case, you're just trying to move the pile, right? I think you're just trying to figure out, okay, in this first phase of separating wheat from chaff who who do i need to see more from and who do i know i need to see more from and and i can just move on but if i know this is my one shot to really get an adjustment i've got to take that time to do it right um and i will say uh while i have a tremendous amount of respect for the 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 pool of talent here in atlanta what i'm finding is helping to galvanize and hopefully elevate their preparation is the influx of new people moving here from new york or la uh because of our you know, burgeoning and exploding film and TV industry. Uh, and you end up having people who are coming to our region with this sensibility of having to pound the pavement all the time. So we're auditioning all the time, maybe multiple times a day, several days a week. Um, whereas that isn't always the case here in our market. Yeah, so it's rarely the case. Rarely the case. And also because I think, you know, there are, there are very few of our professional actors that are just solely doing this now granted uh it's often a combination of stage and and camera work but most of our professional actors are bivocational so that's it, it it's curious in terms of comparing our preparation to other regions because sometimes it does uh, uh you can see the, the 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 chinks in the armor so the cracks of uh how someone's preparing for you know the work that we're doing um based on how often they do it right um, so my hope is that's just going to keep sharpening and getting better um, just based on, I don't want to say the competition that's around you, but the influx of it. But in a way, yes. Well, I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? Is. If you're booking and this person's not, there's a reason why. It's not just because they showed up and you know had a nice smile or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that's... The, but at the end of the day, what I really want to see is some malleability in the room. Because if I, if I can't get a sense of that there's no way that i can guarantee that's going to happen over the course of a rehearsal process and there's nothing worse than being saddled with an actor who what you saw in the room is all you're going to get yeah there's no growth none of the process because the piece itself is going to evolve even from that day of what i thought this moment was in auditions actually might manifest or evolve into something different but if you're still sort of stuck in what that thing was that we did in the room and you're not growing along with the piece yeah right do you approach musicals and straight plays differently? Uh, I don't, to be honest with you. I just, uh, it, it, it's curious because um, I think many people do. They, they create some dichotomy in their, uh, their mind or some way of separating the two. Music, in my estimation, is just another vehicle to tell a story. Uh, and so when I'm working through music within the context of musical theater, there's always this 
sense or or um, uh, note that I give to actors to say you have to do the song. You can't let the song do you. It's there is a dialogue happening between the music and the lyric for sure, and you just have to figure out what that is. And in a well-constructed musical, because there's plenty that aren't well-constructed, mm-hmm. um, it's the song is going to serve as there is a moment where some choice uh, or, or some event or some circumstance has to be either made or navigated through. And so the easiest way, I think, uh, that I deal with music um, is, let's say, you know, we're doing Newsies right now. Okay, so at the end of Act One, Jack sings Santa Fe. So, uh, and it's all based on this moment before of being uh, completely overwhelmed by uh, the cops, and they're they're basically thwarted from their attempt to get this this uh, strike going with the the world newspaper. Um, and so, when we when we started working on that song, um, uh, Greg Camp is playing that role of Jack Kelly. The way that I would approach it is okay. So, what is Jack working out in this song? Why is this song necessary? What what elevates us to the need to sing something versus just speak through something? It's because the the emotional context of that human event has gotten to a point where singular words aren't going to make a difference, um, and it becomes and in his case becomes something much more internal that he's working through. And so that's that's we start approaching it like what is the thing that has to change by the end? What's the thing that you have to work through? What are you pursuing within the context of the song to make the song itself necessary? But to be quite honest with you, I don't see how that's any different than just dealing with text. Right. Um, some people would probably adamantly disagree. It's like, well, you know, but I, I think the what I don't like and what I don't um, support is this idea that there are actors and then musical theater actors. I don't think that that's true or should be true. I think you're an actor. I might be able to utilize song as one of my tools. You think of people like Patti LuPone, who she will tell you first and foremost she's an actor before she says she's a singer, even though she's a dynamic vocalist. Right. But she doesn't tout that it's like, that's my calling card. No, I'm an actor. I just happen to know how to render and interpret music as a tool by which to pursue something. Um, so I really honestly work to, to bridge the gap mm. between musical quote unquote musical theater actors and straight actors. Right. Um, because I just don't think that there should be, uh, there should be a difference when it comes to authenticity, honesty. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly there often tends to be an elevation, I think in the world of, of musicals because of, of that is a tool by which we communicate who breaks out into song in everyday life. Most people don't. Um, so there already is something that is, is slightly, and I hate even using the word heightened cause it, doesn't really mean anything. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a real thing. Um, but I think it's possible to root something in truth and then uh, calibrate it to something that feels just a little lifted. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think it enough. does. And I think if you have those skills, if you can sing. Absolutely. You know, then you should not, there should not be a distinction. Correct. Correct. Um, if yeah. you can't sing. <laughs> well, but even then, but, but I will say, yes, absolutely. And I, I, I firmly believe that with enough practice and rehearsal it is possible for every human being to repeat a note i think notation itself is something intrinsic to our it's the technical ability right but not many people know how to storytell with a song yeah I can see um that. and I, I think that is a skill that um if 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 you can harness and craft that and really uh allow that thing to grow it's it's a tremendous tool a uh, question for you so when i'm, I'm gonna, this is a presumption on my part yeah 
So after what play that you directed or and or had work lined up to where you were like, okay, I've I won't I won't I want to say I made it, yeah. but I'm going to say made it as far as oh gosh, confident in not only on your abilities but also in your ability to sustain and get work. Right. Um, hmm. Uh Okay, I might say this, but then I'm going to feel like I've peaked too soon. Maybe it was Les Mis, you know what I mean? Because uh, of the impact that it had on the organization. And I think how I ended up sort of being tethered to that reflection um, and the way that it galvanized the possibility of the kind of work that Aurora could do. And and in a way that that led to... Now, granted, some sustainability was already in the work. I just wasn't fully aware of what that was until after that that show had sort of crested. Um, but I, that probably was the, the first real moment of, okay, okay, this is, I'm not just sort of, uh, dabbling in this. I'm not just sort of on the fringe of things. Um, this, this feels like prime time to me. Gotcha. Um, and again, not to say that, uh, I don't, uh, love or continue to seek opportunities for some of those, fringier things because it provides great contrast to those kinds of projects. And I've been, I've been so fortunate, particularly at Aurora and even elsewhere as other companies have, have continued to provide opportunities where I have the ability often to craft work that is, I don't want to say in direct contrast, but provides almost like a palate cleanser to the thing before, you know, so you go from an event like, Les Mis to directing Driving Miss Daisy, which they could not be more different. Uh, And and also, I think the necessary thing for, at least for me to do as an artist, to say, okay, I need, if if I were doing, you know, these 30 person, 30 cast musicals back to back to back to back, I don't know if I could sustain that. But also I would say the same thing if it's, you know, if, if I'm just working with these very, you know, small intimate plays, I don't know how you continue to grow from that. So in a way, it's, it's each opportunity um, in, informs and shapes the way that you approach the next thing, even if it's not some mere reflection of the size or scope of what that project are is Are you before. seeking that variety out or are you just using that as part of your analysis tool for, I, for whether to accept? Uh, it, maybe it's a little bit of both, um, but I, 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 I might lean a little bit more to that idea of, of, of active uh, agency and trying to, to find that uh, just because I, I've, I've been doing this enough to know that I need those kinds of, of moments um, for my own recalibration. Is it the same thing with working on a new material versus established material? Absolutely, and 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 both have their own merits. Um, you know, there's there's a tremendous amount of um, uh, excitement to have a living, breathing playwright in the room with you, uh, and also that creates its own um, opportunities and challenges as well. In well, let's, terms let's of let's talk about that. How do you yeah. approach working with a playwright on a new play? Uh, I think first and foremost, fig- figuring out how to identify not only for yourself, uh, but to help clarify for them if they're not sure, or at least making sure that we're on the same page. Like, what story are we trying to tell? Whose play are you trying to tell? Um, and I think that's that that is true for established 
playwrights or emerging ones. And I think once we can figure out um, what the story is uh, and how it's resonating for, for the two of us, we can figure out our way in together. And I'm always going to be of the mindset to serve as a, as some type of clarifying shepherd, right? I don't consider myself to be like a script doctor, whatever that really is. Um, I feel like I can, uh, I can respond to work in a way that provides some feedback for a writer to say, this feels super clear to me or this doesn't feel super clear to me. But I'm not of that ilk of like, but if we change this to this and move the, you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm like a puzzle master when it comes to that. Um, there have been moments where I feel in, in intersecting with a new work where there, some some structural element uh, has has voiced itself in, in some assessment, but it's much more about... Um, through lining uh, some degree of clarity, clarity of relationships and why this play is even necessary. What is the story that, uh, what's the human event that we're, we're trying to encapsulate and, and shed a light on. Um, And then conversely with, with, with scripted work that comes with its own degree of expectations, which you then have to wrestle with and, and figure out how do I, how do I honor the work, um, the intent of the playwright, for sure, because that's what you want to do in, in any circumstance. Um, you know, but for Les Mis, for example, okay, so there are certain expectations one might have of the work. Well, contractually, I can't recreate some visual aesthetic that is anywhere reminiscent of the tour or the the commercial run on Broadway, which is fine. I wouldn't want to do that anyways. I don't. I I honestly don't understand, and I I even hesitate to call them directors because I don't think they are who just simply replicate. That's not a director, right? Uh, I think that's like I don't know. That's that's paint by numbers. I think a you know five year old could do that, uh, and also it's illegal. Like it's it's yeah. cre- it's it's artistic uh, you know uh, content, which is its own sort of creative copyright, um, which I think is is actually tan- tangentially um, uh, is getting harder to do now because of social media, which I, I think is a real boon because someone in some other city is going to know if wait a minute they this looks just like. That was not the case years ago, uh, so I'm actually happy for that. But um, so you have to figure out what are what what is an audience's expectation of the work? Who may have seen the tour? Who may have seen blah 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 blah? Um, it, it certainly is on our radar. Uh, it depends on um, the project itself how much you consider that, because if the intent is to uh, highlight the human event and make sure that all of the relationships are clear and that these people are pursuing things that are clear, um, if that is my my part and parcel modem of, of approach to the work, then I really can't worry about, well, they've he- always heard the song sung this way, or it's always sort of been presented in this kind of whatever. Um, I think you let that go and, and figure out, okay, based on uh, these given circumstances, how do we find the truth of the moment? So it's, it's, I never find that I'm shackled to somebody's expectations of a piece. I know they exist, but I don't feel beholden to them uh, by any means. I, I am leery, though, of... Uh, I think we get into these weird... We're sort of in an odd place right now, I think, in the 21st century, where reimagined this and reinvent... Uh, I, I don't quite know what that means. Um, it feels a little pretentious to me uh, that... Uh, Give me an example. Okay, so... Um, uh, well, let me... I'm going to talk about it this way, because I don't, I don't think I'm going to call it like a specific show... Uh, but I do often wonder if now um, there is a sense of the only way that we can revive something or maybe present something that has some 
you know, some, some notoriety or roots in the canon is to completely turn it on its head. Maybe it's an aesthetic concept or uh, let's cast it in a really interesting way. Um, and I'm just, a, I'm just not convinced that, that that justifies an approach to a piece. You know what I mean? Like, it, uh, my hope is that the reason why we tell the stories that we tell is that there is going to be some resonance to where we are at in human existence right now. I don't think it's ever, nothing is ever meant or should be didactic, but I think if we're trying to create conversations with our, with our audience, then the work that we curate should spark some conversation. Um, And the beauty, hopefully of, of art, um, whatever your opinion is, is or is not of the piece is that no matter where it lives on the time continuum, there will be a response to it because of our current circumstance without us having to manufacture that. Right. We're going to see it. We're going to see it through our our lens based on our experience, based on the world in which we live at any given point in time. Um, So I don't know. I just, uh, I mean, there's, there's something, uh, I guess, maybe imaginatively fun about seeing something that's uh, like rendered in a different way or whatever. But, um, I don't know. I just think it's become, it's become the flavor of the month for people. It's reimagined. Well, from who's, from who's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, okay, um, great. Uh, is there a reason behind it? Is or is it all sort of driven by sort of this auteur mentality of like, I'm just crafting this vision and it has to adhere to this, that, or the other? What's really, what's really the, the again, the human event that we're trying to to poke and prod around and examine. Um, I don't know. That's that's tangential. <coughs> do you have an aesthetic of plays oh, that you like to work on, and then you do you, the same thing for like when you go see a play? I know it's probably impossible for you to separate because yeah. this is what you right. Do. Well, I just um, the I, the the and this is not a cop out, and I, I truly mean this that I I uh, am so curious about a variety of styles. Um, both from a writer's point of view, from an aesthetic point of view, from directorial choices, acting choices, um, that as long as I can find some human connectivity to the piece, I will probably have some resonance with it. Uh, and in fact, um, I, I like to be surprised um, by something. Um, and even if it's just the, the humanity that's being highlighted uh, in an authentic way, that's, that's enough for me to jive with any particular piece of material. So I don't know if I, people ask all the like, what's your favorite play? What do you want to, I don't know if I have one, honestly. I, I, I think, um, and that may be, I know that's not super specific, but I feel like that actually is the, the gift of being a storyteller and, and figuring out, um, I am convinced that the way that the universe tends to operate sometimes is there are things that, that end up coming across, uh, your sphere of influence that, seem to be the thing that you should be working on at any given point in time. Um, you know, I don't think it's entirely a cosmic puzzle, but I often find that the piece that I'm working on now is the piece that I should be working on now, just mm-hmm. based on a variety of circumstances or X factors. But I really feel like uh, I, I am drawn to such a wide variety of programming um, that it's 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 really hard to sort of say. Oh, I really love uh, right. British comedies or like Shakespeare, or whatever. I I just I have such a, a deep appreciation 
for all of it well done. People, you know, like people say, like, what kind of plays do you like? Well, I like good plays. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Exactly. Or good musicals, right? right? And so maybe that's what it is. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I will say um, I, I am becoming, um, like the, old, the, the more that I'm doing this, I am becoming fascinated now uh, and hoping to have some opportunities to live in this world at some point um, with pieces that are really, they're not dance pieces, but they're, they're movement driven. They're like physically driven. Um, I don't know if you got to see um, even Von Off's production of, of You From the Bridge. No, but, I, and but honestly, I've never seen any of his work. It's, everybody it's just remarkable, right? Yes, because there is something so primal about the way that he allows these characters to live and breathe. And simple, just stripped away. There's not a whole lot of aesthetic support, but the, the physical life that... Uh, that becomes manifest is just it it just feels that makes the play so vital um and i think you know maybe it's because of film and television that we are are now sort of i think even in theaters this is becoming the case we're starting to internalize a lot of the work that we do to somehow mimic what we're seeing on film and tv you mean as, as actors or i think as actors i think as actors and maybe even writers too um that you're just not seeing a fullness of like, how do I live in my full body on stage? Because I don't have to on camera. It's, you know, a framed shot, composed shot, maybe from, you know, chest up or whatever that is. Um, and so I don't have to, to, to be fully alive in my body. And I find that that's, um, that's a, not, I don't want to call it a struggle, but it's a new thing to consider, particularly now that we're sharing a lot of talent in both, the stage world and on camera. And so I find myself noting these kinds of things a lot with, uh, with actors that I, I, I need you to live fully. You're just living neck up right, right now. And that's, that does not a play make. Do you have desire to do on camera work? Directly? I would love to. I would love to. Um, I've had the opportunity to observe um, uh, a couple of productions around town. Uh, no film, just episodic television. Um, but I, it's, you know, it's curious and, you know, some of it might be your own um, sort of self-affirmation and maybe similarly to when you were assistant directing plays where you're silently thinking, well, I could do that. I could do that. Um, but I, I, I haven't yet been on a set where I have felt overwhelmed or felt like, oh, I couldn't navigate this or I, I wouldn't know how to communicate with my DP or, or other folks or the actors themselves. Um, and yes, it is, you know, it is a different medium. I'm just not convinced that, uh, it, there's a difference when it comes to truth and authenticity. So it's just, it's, there's just, there's a calibration of size for sure. Um, so I would love that opportunity. I find here in Atlanta, we are much more apt to share acting talent between multiple mediums, but there's still a tremendous amount of import from LA or New York or elsewhere for these production teams. Oh, completely. And abs- you know, so I would, I would love to figure out a way to bridge that gap and, 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 and see if those kinds of opportunities could present themselves in this market. Yeah, crew, um, I think crew and crew for is, sure is doing, is doing better, but yeah, uh, money but in terms and, of like creatives, yes, that, that's coming from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and I hope that that will, that will change or at least, uh, at least expand because otherwise you just feel like, okay, you know, and, and it's not a pot shot against uh, the film industry here in Georgia. I think it's a tremendous economic boom for sure, but also providing a tremendous amount of employment for folks. Um, you just don't want to feel like your resources are just being uh, taken advantage of, right? Like we're just being, we're this, we're the, uh, we're the host, for, we're yeah. the host for whatever. You know what I mean? Like we could really make 
all of those tiers, including the creatives, integrated within the fabric of of our state, and the people who are here, and the people who are coming in. And I mean, what other? How 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 cool would that be to make those collaborations a, a possibility and super specific? I think you could generate a lot of really wonderful content. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any plays in your back pocket that are like somebody says, you know, I've got a fifty thousand dollars to spend on this play. You know, what should we do? <laughs> Um, what, I, you, well, uh, or dream or dream productions yeah, that you want to get done? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, it, within the 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 musical theater canon, uh, I jokingly say, um, if I had an opportunity to produce and direct, um, Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George, I might look into retirement. <laughs> uh, it's just it has it has always been um, certainly I think a, a Valentine to creatives and uh, one of the most clear uh, narratives about the tension between artistic process and every other aspect of an artist's life. Um, and so there's just, there's so much resonance there. Uh, but then also this idea that, um, that art speaks for itself. Um, and of course we're always going to be our, our own and probably worst critics, but I think we spend so much time trying to defend the work that we make and, uh, whether it's you know through social media or this that or the other, uh, when in actuality, if we could just let it be and let it go and let it live in whatever sphere it's going to live in and let it affect people the way it's going to affect people, because we can't control that anyways. But if we could authentically let go of that, I feel like we would have a much more fulfilling uh, trajectory and life as artists. Um, I don't know if that's that's completely possible. I, mean, I, think, you know? it, I think it comes with uh, experience and sure. age and, and sure. wisdom. But I think it's an extremely totally. road. It is. It well, is. And I'm not well, on and the I think, path, though. Totally. Not, and I think you know. that I mean, maybe that's part of, that's, you know, that's part of the, the, the journey, right? Right. Um, working through those things of, of, of learning how to let those things go. Um, uh, uh, Play-wise, I... Um, we were having a conversation. So I, we, we here in Atlanta, we have a, um, a director circle. It's a, basically just a, a group that gets together every, uh, every so months to talk about different um, aspects related to producing or casting or season selection or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's not just open for those who are, um, who are staff members or sort of uh, directors who are working regularly. It's also for aspiring directors or emerging directors or people moving here from different cities who just want to figure out like how do I tap in or how can I just get some more information about what other people are thinking when it comes to the work that's being generated in this town. This past week we had a round table with uh, several critics. So it was the first time that we had really made space for directors and critics to sit down in one room and just have an open um, uh, dialogue with one another about uh, what is it that we do in our lanes and what are our assumptions about the other? And so it was a really beautiful um, opportunity to engage through curiosity, not skepticism, through trust, not suspicion. Uh, and I think we all walked away with just much more of a, an understanding of, oh, no, this is actually what you are considering this when you're watching a show. I just never thought that you did, but you've articulated it and I have no reason not to believe you. Well, there aren't that many full-time critics anymore. We don't. Which... We really don't. They're all they're all at the mercy of uh, you know the dwindling print media. Um, we do have a wonderful asset here in Atlanta um, <clears throat> with Arts ATL, which is a complete online platform. And the beauty of that is it it covers 
every platform uh, in visual performing arts that you could consider. Uh, and they also do a tremendous job of, of highlighting those things that are happening on the fringe. Yeah, or that may not get really a lot of coverage. Holding, like, the they back. really are. They, to- they totally are. Um, and yet, you know, that also comes with its own handcuffs or its own considerations of clicks do matter, right? And so, you know, not that they're going to, I'm not going to cover visual arts because it's not getting as much clicks as dance or theater. But I, I, uh, one conversation that I had with the, uh, the editor of, of, of that publication was as a, as a working artist, I think part of our job and part of our responsibility is making sure that we are supporting every other platform as well. Because it's very easy for us to silo ourselves and say, well, I'm just focusing on my lane of theater. I don't care about what's happening in the world of dance or opera or uh, instrumental music or visual art or whatever. Or journalism. Or journalism itself. But by, by leaning into that apathy, you're actually you're, you're helping to destroy that machine. So um, my uh, uh, recommendation was, or suggestion was, figure out a way to, to highlight other events that are not related to your particular form on your social media, on your e-blasts, on whatever that case is, because we are all part of a similar, we're all like on the same ship. Right. Just maybe in different compartments. Um, but all that being said, that um, going back to this idea of uh, <clears throat> plays that I would be interested in in, in directing, uh, it was brought up by one of the critics that um, Atlanta actually is a very healthy city for new work. And I feel like we've done a lot to cultivate our audiences to expect new work. Um, and it's not just at uh, you know the Alliance or Aurora or elsewhere. I feel like that's what a lot of theaters um, uh, dive into with a plum. And it's really, really a satisfying kind of endeavor. Um, what actually may now be the whole, I think, in the theatrical landscape around Atlanta are any of the classics. Um, so I would be very curious to, I would love to 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 dive into some Tennessee Williams or Arthur Miller. Um, and again, they don't just have to be American playwrights, but I do, I am curious about uh, how those pieces might speak to a contemporary audience through the framework of an, of the quote-unquote American experience, whatever that is. Um, so yeah, I, it, it, I, I think something along those lines um, would would draw my attention. Um, Eugene O'Neill, I, Long Day's Journey into Night. Uh, if if someone would would bankroll that and feel good about a three-hour production, right? <laughs> uh, it's just such such a tremendous showcase for a human event that's unfolding. Yeah, that's that's funny. That's actually my answer when somebody asks me what if there's a role. Yeah. You yeah, know, and it's James Tyrone. Yeah, you know, as the as the elder, and because that always meant to me one, I just that work really resonates with me, but also it means that I've had an acting career to where I'm in my sixties. <laughs> so right. That's, that's, you know, yeah, and I like, I'm just not convinced that um, you know I think folks are so quick to say, well, we don't have the attention span that we used to have 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think it's a cop out. I think we do. I completely agree. If we if we look at how we binge watch Netflix or Hulu or whatever. We're watching hours upon hours of content of the same thing. It's just if, it, if it's good. If it's good. That's what I'm saying. So I, I, I would be reticent to allow someone to articulate that as an excuse as to why we wouldn't do this, that, or the other. So my hope is that, um, yeah, I, we could manifest something like that. And if it's not here in Atlanta, maybe elsewhere. But uh, yeah, I would love to, I'd love to dive into some... Some of those classics. So, with your working with Aurora, do you have a certain like uh, 
vacuums in the year where, the, where it's okay for you to go direct outside the company? Yeah, so that is, um, you know, I uh, it's I don't have sort of a, like an official contract that states that. There's an understanding within the organization with our producers uh, that that was part of the conversation when I took the, the job to begin with. Um, I find now... Um, that I am directing less in Atlanta outside of Aurora. And that, that has been strategic um, because there is a sensibility of, uh, with my affiliation with the organization, there's some branding that's tied to that. Um, and so th- it's, there's this notion of if I'm directing everywhere, then there's nothing special about me being at Aurora, which um, for the for the most part, I agree with. Um, there have been exceptions, though, for sure. When a project has come up, that's just something that that is that resonates in a deeply personal way, and I, I make the case that I would really like to go work on this if they would have me. And I've never I've never been told no, um, but I have to be strategic about when I make those asks. But there is opportunity, um, and sometimes it is sort of not, maybe not like a vacuum in the year, but there are easier times in the year to say okay. For example, um, most of our holiday programming at this point is kind of a well-oiled machine. Even though Canteen is a different iteration every year, it borrows things from years past, maybe creates some new things. There are new cast members. The aesthetic of the stage changes. But it's essentially the same kind of show. So if there is a time for me to duck, it's probably around then. Uh, This year is a little bit different because we are introducing a new uh, holiday show in our studio. Um, it's a one man version of it's a wonderful life, uh, by Steve Murray called this wonderful life. Um, and it's replacing Gina Hoban's 12 dates of Christmas. That's going to be retired for a little bit. And that will run in rep with, uh, the one man version of a Christmas Carol that Anthony Rodriguez, um, acts in. So I'll be directing that piece. And, uh, and because it's a new offering hoping to become a staple, it just made sense for me to, to helm that work. We also were going through, um, uh, a series of, of, of uh, st- staff changes. Um, and so there was an anticipation that uh, I wasn't going to be able to really sort of take a chunk of time out of this year to be away from the organization with a new staff member coming in and sort of helping to um, build that bridge with the learning uh, curve and all that jazz. Um, because I was hoping this year to go back to Albania uh, because I had the, the, the pleasure of, of an immense privilege of directing a show in Albania last year at the end of yeah, 2017. Let's talk about that. So the costume director for the show you worked on yes. was he, she, yes. Was so she in town as a visiting artist. No. She, so here's, um, uh, without, without sort of bogging down details on the history of Albania, uh, was under communistic rule for about 50 years post world war two. The most strict, the most. What I, what Absolutely. I grew up learning. Absolutely. Um, uh, and again, it, unfortunately you ask or say the word Albania and people are like Alabama, Alberta? No, it's it's a country. It's in the Balkan Peninsula. It's, it's right next to Greece, Macedonia, Kosovo, um, and it's about a what a you know two and a half hour, three hour boat ride from the heel of Italy. Um, so uh, in the early nineties, you know, it started with the the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late eighties, started pushing its way to the east. Of course, you know, we ended up with the dissolution of the USSR and a bunch of other uh, countries um, were toppling or sort of crumbling within their their uh, dictator regimes and frameworks. Uh, Albania was no exception. They were um, very squarely aligned with Russia and China. 
Um, so Inver Hoxha died, who was their dictator at the end of the, really the end of the 80s. 92 is when the, the country really started sort of dissolving. By 94, it was sort of on its way out, but it, there was a tremendous amount of uh, conflict that ended up erupting in uh, the Balkan Peninsula. And many people may or may not know or remember of um, uh, the Bosnian-Herzegovinian conflict that we were involved in as the United States in the 90s. Um, and it, but it, it found its way not just in those in those countries, but really sort of peninsula wide. Almost uh, the Serbians were involved in that. It's just a, a whole mess. Um, uh, it's curious too. Most people don't understand or don't realize that the word Balkan means to uh, to create conflict. Uh, it means like tension and uh, like we're we're just going to wrestle or sort of break something apart. That's the name of this region. Um, and it's so it's I mean, it's 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 both bizarre and curious and 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 sobering at the same time. Um, so Yonita immigrated to the United States and Yonita Becho um, in the 90s to go to school. She ended up in in Alabama, of all places, uh, Albania, Al- Alabama, like the sort of the perfect um, bridge. Uh, and so immediately was um, not only trying to navigate her life uh, in in, in the United States, but in a very Southern context. Um, and so uh, she went to school at UAB in, in Birmingham um, and uh, uh, ended up moving to Atlanta several years later. She and her husband, who was also Albanian, um, and primarily started getting work as a, as a costume designer. She started sewing, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, Yonita. I think it was at the age of four, but it was super, super young. Uh, her grandmother taught her. Um, and so that was, that was a knack that she had, um, not just in terms of the utility of making clothes, but conceiving and aesthetically, you know, sort of dream casting uh, a concept. Um, so she always had that as a skill. And when she was at UAB um, and, and, and she was studying theater, she never sort of knew where her place was because she always, and still to this day has a very definitive dialect. And so you know, she thought, I just, I don't belong in these contemporary American plays. I, if we're doing classical work, it makes a little bit more sense. Um, so when those opportunities came around, she was cast in those or would, or would pursue those. And then in those times when it, she just was sort of in no man's land, she just created her own work. She would literally like lock herself in a room with uh, some props or costume pieces and just create And so she created a series of one woman shows that um, she ended up sort of doing many tours of. Um, And so all of this is building, you know, uh, within the context of like trying to create a life as a well-rounded artist or someone who isn't sort of relegated to a singular lane or a box, but just kind of figuring out where do I fit in the landscape? But her entree into Atlanta was as a costume designer. And that's where I met her um, in 2010 when we were working on uh, 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 Around the World in 80 Days. And I remember... On opening night, she gave me a card and um, uh, a CD as like a thank you gift. And the CD had her picture on it, but the name of the, on the CD was Gypsy Yo. And I was like, what, what is this, Yonita? And she goes, oh, it's just it's something I do on the side. And I'm thinking, maybe she's like a singer-songwriter or whatever. <coughs> so... As is apt to happen in my car, uh, there's a lot of things that just sort of end up in the passenger seat <laughs> and the pile sort of accrues until, you know, some time goes by. Sometimes it's weeks. We're like, oh, okay, let me clean up whatever this is. So I found the CD 
and I put it in my car. I was driving, who knows, I think to another rehearsal. And after about 30 seconds, I had to like, pull over the car and call her. And I just asked, she was like, hi, are you okay? I was like, what, like what's going on? Or whatever. I said, who are you? <laughs> because it was this magical tapestry of, I don't know, like this Alabama barn music with like this really like great folksy scoring and this incredibly rich spoken word poetry, mm. like the slam poetry. And I was just floored. And, uh, and so I was like, who, who are you? Which cause well, this, I mean, this is what I do. I write and I'm, I'm, I, I am a slam poet as well. And she, not just a slam poet. She's an international award winning slam poet. Gotcha. She's been featured on NPR snap judgment many, many times. You can Google or YouTube, uh, you know, a bunch of her, her clips, just a tremendous talent. The, 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 the elasticity and the way that she navigates English, which is her second language, blows my <laughs> mind. And she still thinks that she doesn't have a handle on it. That there are things that are like, oh, I don't know. It's like, Yonita, you know it better right. than many of us. Don't get a handle Please. on it if you, if, right. if you don't. Right. So what ended up happening, we, so we, we had that intersection, um, you know, again, in my assisting position with her as a director. And then we started collaborating as a director and a costume designer on several projects. And then, this was, I think, end of 2012, early 2013, just before we were doing uh, Angry Facts at Seven Stages. She had approached me with this idea that she had sort of cajoled out of Tom Key at uh, Theatrical Outfit. She was dressing him. She had designed costumes for a production of The Man from Atlanta by Horton Foote that they were producing. And so she's dressing Tom and like going through these, um, uh, these uh, fittings with him and just was, just was sort of emboldened to say, you do know that I, I also write and perform. I don't just design costumes. And of course, Tom was intrigued. Uh, and so they sort of had this conversation and it, it ended up that there was, a, uh, there was a, a period of time in January of 2013 where the theater was dark and uh, he said, if you want access to the space, have it. Like, do something. Create something. Whatever I you want. I love that. Which was so wonderful. So she contacted me and said, so, hey, I've gotten clearance from uh, the folks at TO, and we have access to the rehearsal room. And a couple of days on the main stage, there's nothing there in programming. There's no load-in happening. Uh, you want to help me create a play? And I was like, uh, yes, absolutely. I have no idea how or, or, or whatever. It was like, but the, the immediate answer was yes. And so she had a, um, a selection of about 17, 18, maybe 20 poems um, that covered uh, experiences in Albania to her time assimilating or at least sort of assessing her, her, her life here in, in America. Uh, so we decided that we were going to try to figure out a way to navigate these sort of this nonlinear series of events in her life to create a narrative about her experience. And so we landed on um, the, the word Haribel, which is Albanian for sparrow, because she talks about often in her, in her poetry how she considers herself to be a bird in the hand of God moving mm-hmm. over a minefield. Oh, wow. And that literally, um, it's it's through divine uh, intervention that uh, she has survived so many of these uh, horrible things that have happened um, in her lifetime. 
And she's only a year older than I am, but it feels as if she's lived five or six lives. Um, and so we started crafting this piece. It was completely devised. We didn't know what, we knew that it would need some kind of framework because just presenting it as strung together poetry didn't make sense at all. And so we ended up crafting uh, this, this guise or sort of this framework around um, the pieces by casting her, sort of uh, framing her as the wardrobe mistress. Um, and so what we ended up generating was a set that looked like a backstage. You have uh, garment racks of clothing, stacked up props, uh, random set pieces. And there was a, uh, an intimation that there was a show going on elsewhere. So in a, in a way, it's like we turned the theater around. Right. And so what you're hearing from the backstage hallways are very muffled actors' voices going through whatever text they're going through. And you're hearing a stage manager come over calm, say, okay, we need to hold, please go back to top of page 93. We'll pick it up with this uh, text here and go. Thank you. Like you, whatever. And so what we just, we dovetail into this event basically in the middle of a tech process. Oh, I love and so that you idea. see Yonita scurrying in and out um, from the stage with pieces, or you hear the stage manager say, can we please remove that hat? Uh, it's, it's the director wants to cut the hat, please. And then moments later, you see Yonita coming in with a hat, putting it back on, um, you know, one of the uh, the styrofoam heads or whatever the case is. And so all of that goes through some degree of completion, and you hear the announcement from the stage manager that we're going on to meal break and that we're back at a certain period of time, but this is our two-hour meal break, blah, 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 blah. Goes away. Moments later, Yonita's back on stage, and this is where sort of the, the shift occurs with the realization that the audience is present because she hasn't recognized them up until that point. And so she's, she's literally sewing and doing it all in real time. She's like ripping seams and doing whatever. And there's the, this discovery that there are people in the room and she doesn't know what to do. There's this moment of, oh, oh I, uh, I need to get some help for you. Maybe check with stage management. You must be here for some, uh, was there some backstage tour going on that I'm not aware of? No one told me. I think everyone's out to lunch. And so there's this attempt to search and, um, what ends up sort of dawning on her is what becomes this moment of panic evolves into an opportunity to, uh, to share her experience as this wardrobe mistress about what it is that she does, because the part of it's an obligation of, well, I'll, I'll keep you engaged until someone gets here. And there's this realization that no one's coming back. Mm. Uh, and so it emboldens her to, find a way to tell her own story and she uh, opens up this trunk um, and basically elicits sort of this magical realism to the world and, and it, it introduces this um, this Balkan music uh, and she starts pulling out these dresses and animates them in such a way that it just, it literally just like transformed the space and she goes from being this sort of utilitarian uh, you know person who can use a machine to literally it's like she's a prestidigitator on stage she becomes a magician and it just was this magical transference to the audience because i think that there might have been a degree of you know exoticism connected to it but i don't think that was the real draw i think it was just this this mesmerizing quality of how does this person have such faculty of language and is so in tune with their body and is it's there was just like this fearless quality to what she was creating on stage and what was so wonderful in the rehearsal room because when when she and I were just working on this as a as a, a project we didn't have a stage manager we didn't have anyone else assigned to us so we just set up iPads to record rehearsals because we needed to go back and figure out what was that thing that we did right what worked you know what, what i mean work, yeah. and she again 
she uh, uh, leans into this adage that I am very much a fan of, that we rehearse not to get something right. We rehearse to never get something wrong. Because she never wanted to have a moment where there was some physical engagement going on where she was up here in her head. She wanted to be so connected to her heart and gut that it was everything was impulsive and intrinsic in the way that she was responding to things. Um, you know, there's there's a story that she shares um, in one of her poems about these two brothers that um, grew up in the same apartment tenement building as her, who assaulted her. And what she ended up doing is she found we found this old A-frame wooden ladder, and she ends up wrapping herself into this ladder and squeezing it together like an accordion to manifest this idea of what it was like to be trapped by these guys. Oh, that's great. <coughs> Sorry. So it just it was unbelievably rich uh, in, in the world that we crafted and sort of navigated. And so we did it for the, this this two-day workshop presentation, and Tom Key at Theatrical Outfit was so moved by the piece that he decided to program a full run of it fall. So we did that. Um, it really, and I was, what I was so, what I was most proud of was the opportunity to really shake up somebody's expectation about an artist because everyone in town just thought she was a costume designer. Mm. And when people came to see it, like I'm getting like emotional thinking about it, they were just floored by the the bravery and the tenacity of her story and i don't know it just she she is a she's a really really special person so about a year after that occurred which is so interesting because now that she was introduced to atlanta as sort of this multi multifaceted person artist we, you know there were dreams of like maybe some other things that we were crafting or some other opportunities well she ended up um, getting contacted from the uh, newly elected mayor of Tirana, who happened to be a childhood friend of hers. They went to school together. And he just sort of planted the seed of an idea in that, uh, you know, he's changing over the cabinet and everyone sort of related in, in the city and really wanted her to become a part of uh, the work that was going on in Tirana, sort of revitalizing the city and, and investing in some... Um, some like civic programming. She wasn't sure. She's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And uh, by this point, she and her husband have two kil- uh, two children. So you know, they're they they've grown up here and they've certainly traveled back to see family. But um, after a lot of thought and consideration, um, they decided to move back um, because there was such opportunity uh, within what the sort of the the future casting of what. Albania could become, particularly Tirana, that she just, she felt compelled to be a part of that change. Yeah, that'd be almost um, impossible. To absolutely, say that and so I just think it was it was a it was a tremendously difficult decision for her, and she spent a year working with some youth oriented programs before this position came open at Tatra Metropole, and she was the first person that they asked, um, and so she took over that position and literally has just galvanized the theatrical landscape in Albania. Uh, when she went over, she uh, sort of dangled this carrot, like, Justin, I'm going to have you come over to work on a project. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's an idea that we're working on. I won't go into detail uh, about it, but it's something that we had started a conversation about, um, basically like a bio play with music about a woman named Vachazela, who is, she was the voice of Albania. Think of Edith Piaf uh, to France. She was, she was the Edith Piaf of Albania. But she had uh, a career only because the dictator allowed her to have a career. 
and had such a contentious relationship. And it really ended up being a very sort of abusive kind of relationship, just in terms of the, the power dynamic. Um, that by the time that he died at the end of the 80s, early 90s, she, I guess she had been singing for, what, a couple of decades, that she was so convinced that she was nothing without his approval that she ended up immigrating, and I'm, I should know this better, I can't remember if it's Sweden or Switzerland, but she died in obscurity last several years of her life. And so we we are trying to figure out a way to create a piece based on her life with her music. Um, and it's 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 just proving to be a little bit more difficult because a musical is not a thing in Albania. They've never produced a musical before. And so weaving music in as part of story, uh, at least within sort of a maybe a traditional musical theater, even in this case would be like a jukebox musical. They've never done it before. Oh, wow. So it's also having to identify someone who could do that. Um, so anyways, it's, it's, it's in process. We're, we, we, hopefully we can come back to that. Um, so she asked me last year, uh, you know, like early part of 2017, if, uh, first of all, if I was available to come. So it, it just, it, again, it worked out because all of our holiday programming was set. It was like, actually, I think we can make it work if it's end of the year, mid-October, end of December. So she said, okay, so we know we have to put a little bit more investment in this other project. How about Twelfth Night? I'm like, uh, okay. What about Twelfth Night? She goes, I, I said, well, I, I, it's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. I do appreciate it, but why? She goes, because of Illyria. I was like, and? She goes, you do know Illyria is ancient Albania, right? <laughs> yeah. like, no. Uh, no, although I feel like I should because I took five years of Latin, really studied Roman <laughs> yeah. civilization along with Greek civilization in tandem. Um, and so I feel like I had heard that before. I was like, get out of town, Yonita. That's crazy. And uh, so it just immediately made sense. And all of a sudden it became a play about Albanians to me. Like it was really phenomenal. The other cool thing, so again, quick history lesson. Albania was under Ottoman uh, rule for 1,500 years. Um, and they became independent in, oh gosh, I think it was 1911, early part of the 1900s, and then of course uh, became a dictatorship, a dictatorship in 45. Um, but during that time of Ottoman occupation, there was a tremendous amount of persecution going on between the Turks and uh, the, Al- the native Albanians. So there was a group, this was several hundred years ago, uh, that they, uh, they, they couldn't take it anymore. They just felt like we, we have to get out. And with great reticence, because they didn't want to leave their home country, but they ended up um, uh, sailing to Italy and settling in Italy. Um, and there is still an, Al- uh, an Albanian community in Italy surrounded by Italian speakers, and they speak Albanian. They're called the Arboresh. And there's these incredible songs um, that talk about the the longing for home and uh, this this pining for the, the like the motherland that I can't get back to. So here's the mind blowing part. Okay, so you know that uh, Viola and Sebastian are traveling from Messaline, which is a town in Italy. So what we decided to do, without drawing so much attention to the sort of the, the literal name of, of Messaline, because that's not part of the Arboresh, is we dressed them in Arboresh costumes. And anyone who was in that uh, uh, sort of uh, initial um, scene, w- what we ended to do is we crafted a scene on the ship as they were crossing over in this, this dance of, 
uh, joy and celebration, then we actually see the storm hit and and shipwreck the boat. Um, this is a beautiful sort of lyrical piece that we, we created to see the actual separation of Viola and Sebastian. Oh, that's cool. Before she ends up on the shore um, and says, you know, what country friends is this? Illyria. Yeah. Um, so because they were dressed as the Arboresh and speaking Albanian, the audience automatically knew they got it. that they were from Italy, but they were the, Ar- the Arboresh Albanians in Italy. And the reason they knew the language is because they were Albanian and they had just never been to Albania or Illyria. Oh, that's great. So that's why the language of the play being an Albanian made sense. It literally became an Albanian play. It was just, it was crazy cool. Um, How excited did you get when you realized? I mean, it was, but it was ridiculous. Like it was just, it just felt like kismet. And I was so appreciative of Yunita just being so specific about why this would work. Um, and how cool would it be and literally a way to introduce this idea of uh, 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 of her and I in the way that we have been collaborators over the years and in, in um, taking what is r- really one of the best known English plays and contextualizing it within Albania and it was just mirrored in, in our relationship um, and so I was there for seven weeks uh, and, um, it was, it was one of the richest experiences of my life, both celebratory and frustrating because what I really learned for the first time was how to check my own privilege mm. and my own, uh, you know, I, I dare say like, uh, Americanism because, uh, there was a, there were impulses because you're already sort of lacking in your facility of, of the Albanian language, which I sorely was. And there is a degree of comprehension within those who are bilingual. Uh, some are, are truly bilingual with deep comprehension of the English language. Others, they can re- repeat certain things that will get them through a like, hi, how are you? Where's the bathroom? Uh, can I order some coffee? Whatever that is. Right. Um, and so what was really phenomenal, though, is we never had a, a dedicated translator in the room. People would just sort of fill in the gap. They would just immediately, but you had to learn how to make space for that. Right. And so you go in with like guns ablazing. You're like, oh, I got to tick down this rhythm because it's never going to work because yeah, we can't, we're not going to know. And uh, you're dealing with, um, <clears throat> you know, different approaches to style, different approaches to, uh, to acting, there's this thing in Albania called suffering um, that you're going to say something to me and I'm really going to take it in. I mean, I'm going to let it sink and, and, and get to the, the tips of my toes. This is an everyday kind of thing? No, no, no. When it comes to, when it comes to acting, technique. acting okay. technique. And then, I, then when I'm good and ready, I'm going to respond back to you. Milking, suffering. Yeah, right? that's what they call it. They call it suffering. <laughs> let me suffer with the moment. Oh my God. I and so, yeah, yeah. So anytime there was a, a sense of, okay, you, I'm, I'm asking you to think faster as an actor. Yes, I want it to affect you, but you don't have to indulge. We don't have to internalize because we will lose any degree of, of momentum in this story. If we're constantly, if it's in fits and starts, it's never going to land anywhere. And the audience is never going to be clear about where we are headed with this thing. Um, and so there were a couple of times where, um, uh, actors of a certain generation were like, you're just asking me to go faster. You're just, ask-. no, I'm not. I'm asking you to think faster and there's a difference. And so finally, you know, uh, but you had to really check yourself and say, okay, how do I meet people where their skill set is? Um, and and figure out a way to intersect and and steer this together versus saying no 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 you're doing it wrong can we do it my way because right. that would have been the easiest thing to do it's like up oh, stop the train let's just start over 
and I just didn't want to do that. Um, and you, you're trying to engender trust with people that you don't know. The only person I knew was Yonita, who was serving. I mean, she was the producer in the room, but you know, serving as a little bit of a uh, also aiding with the translation and, and dramaturgy and things like that. But she wasn't there in rehearsal every day. So uh, it's really figuring out like how do I how do I date you all real quick and get you to a place where we all trust each other. Right. Um, but I found that to be such a galvanizing force for my own work and this idea that for the first time in a long time, I had been met with uh, a group of people, a group of resources that I had never worked with before. And so it forced me to continue to be completely and as specifically articulate with what I was asking or what I was hoping for. Um, I couldn't rest on any relationship, say, oh, you know what I mean. You know that thing that we right. do, right? You literally did not Because uh, you literally language. do not know and you <laughs> literally can't guess or whatever that is. Um, so I just found that so satisfying and, and rigorous as a, as a director. And it was really curious because I didn't know that was something I was craving until I was in the midst of that. And so it's been great coming back uh, because it, it continues to sort of fuel my work now. Um, and one of the beautiful things about Newsies uh, that's currently running at Aurora um, is I would say about, I don't know, 80% of the cast I had never worked with before. And I, we did it on purpose. And I think some of it was tethered to that experience because I knew that I, I just wasn't interested in stepping back into the same old, same old. Well, that's and so even though we had similar you know, financial resources and things like that, I wanted some of the players to be different. And I, you know, it wasn't a matter of just saying, we're casting just based on you're different. They really earned the, the, uh, those choices, but it was so satisfying to be able to say, yeah, I can, we can both do this because um, there's, uh, there's authenticity in uh, the work that they're doing, but also the intentionality of saying, I just want to be challenged and forced to be on my toes throughout this entire process. Uh, so that way yeah. to keep your work fresh. I, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and again, I know things like Albania are a bit of a mountaintop experience. You can't have an Albania every time. And if you did, then that's going to start losing its, 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 um, impact. You, it's not going to, to be as special as it, it ended up being. Um, so by the time that, uh, the show opened, I, I flew out the next day after opening it was just, and I, I imagine people who have those kinds of immersion experiences would say the same thing, that it just got to the point where you, you really just felt like you belonged in that country. You belonged in this community. And for what I couldn't speak or articulate, I could understand. You start building comprehension uh, with a foreign language faster than you can often repeat it back. So it was bizarre. I could have a conversation with someone. They could speak Albanian to me completely. And it's as if I literally, and I'm not making this up, I understood everything that they said. I just couldn't say it back to them in their language. Right. Uh, I just, I don't know. It was just a really, a really incredible experience. And uh, we are, we are hoping to plan something to get me back there in the future. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I feel yeah. like you have to get back there. <laughs> yeah, I would love to make it uh, a, a regular kind of exchange. And I know Yonita's interested in um, hosting some additional uh, uh, creatives, whether it's a lighting designer or a stage manager. That's not necessarily a, a thing over there. Um, or sort of really understanding that person who helps to navigate and corral and manage 
the entire process. That's not the director. Man, you bring a big, bring a really good stage manager over there, like right. <laughs> well, just think, but also, yeah. I mean, just think about again the the cross, the value and the richness of that cross cultural exchange. Yeah. And my hope too is to be able to provide a platform over here in the states for the Albanian work. Um, there, there are plenty of metropolitan areas in the country that have a, a pretty large diaspora um, that would completely support it. Right. Um, and even, you know, with a piece like 12 night in particular, if you had subtitles, great. If you didn't, you would still understand what's going on in the play. If you right. know the play, you don't even need the, the English version of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There was just something really, really wonderful. Uh, it both, it both met exceeded and did not meet my expectations all at the same time. Wow. Well, I have, a, I have, a, I could have a hundred follow-up questions on it, but I want to be respectful of your time. Sure. Uh, what's next for you here? Uh, I will be directing, um, this wonderful life by Steve Murray at Aurora theater. And that opens, uh, Thanksgiving day weekend and runs through, I think it's the weekend prior to Christmas. And that alternates in rep with uh, a one man version of a Christmas Carol. Um, local, Star Jeremy Aggers is, is playing the role, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and then we're currently in pre-production and um, uh, stage reading workshop mode of a new musical called Men With Money that will have a full production in the spring of 2019, March of 2019. But we'll be doing a stage reading um, work through of the piece at the end of September at Aurora. And it's a delightful piece that uh, in 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 a way is reminiscent of and honors sort of the sensibility of Guys and Dolls, Thoroughly Modern Millie, um, some of the great 50s rom-com films, His Girl Friday, Pillow Talk, um, and uh, How to Mel- How to Marry a Millionaire specifically. There's is a lovely homage to it. It's a reimagined uh, 1950s where love is love, and you have three gentlemen that are uh, down on their luck financially or absolutely trying to marry themselves off to millionaires and two of them are looking for husbands. So it's, um, in a way, uh, the writers, uh, uh Bill Nelson and Joseph Treffler and I, it, it, it has become a way to reclaim the fifties, um, from, from a gay perspective, but it's not a, uh, I don't want to label it as a gay play. It's a play about love. Um, but particularly within the context of, of those who created it, those who are working on it, it's it's the musical we wish we would have had as part of our story uh, from the fifties. So um, that's that's pretty exciting. That's outstanding. Yeah. Uh, where can folks find you online? Uh, my website um, www.justinandersononline.com. I know that's super long. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, the IG. Uh, I am Justin Anderson. Um, I'm not on Facebook these days. I haven't, I haven't been for the last five years and I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, I've recently <laughs> taken a, uh, a little hiatus a Facebook hiatus. And honestly, I found it incredibly wonderful. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and you know, you can also find contact information, uh, for me at the Aurora theater, uh, page at roarotheater.com If you want to contact me. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're going to punt the, uh, the, the perennial questions I usually ask at the end, and I really, really appreciate your time. Thank this you so much, Michael. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. 